Well, hello, everybody. This is Randy Wooten. I'm CEO of Maxio and your host of SaaS Expert Voices, the podcast that brings the SaaS experts to help you understand where we are today and what's happening tomorrow. Today, I'm honored to be talking to Dan Owens, actually our Maxio CFO. We're going to talk about the disruption of the office of the CFO, talk about the changing role of the CFO, and also ask Dan for some advice and insights for those that may be earlier in the career. Uh, it's just been great to get to know Dan over the last year and a half. He comes with tremendous experience, both as a public company CEO after spending 20 years in finance and accounting, where he was started as a uh, auditor at e- Ernst & Young and then went up the track. I was FP&A, leader of FP&A at a large $20 billion company. And then what's so interesting, I think, for our audience is that Dan has also had deep experience with some of the top PE firms in the world, Marlin and Vista, spending over three and a half years working with 15 to 20 different portfolio companies where he does pattern matching and helping finance executives figure out what it is they need to do best. So uh, great to have you, Dan. Thanks, Randy. Re- really enjoy the opportunity. <laughs> yeah. And so when we try to pull you out of one of those PE firms, I won't say which one, and talked about you coming back on the operator side, Talk a little bit about what you were seeing more broadly across the uh, portfolio companies, the struggles they were having, and why Maxio seemed to be a good fit for you at that time. Yeah, so a lot of the companies I worked with were sub $100 million. A lot of them founder-led, maybe been through a couple rounds of um, investments, but really were making the transition to the PE world. So a great product, not necessarily great back office type um, or data type uh, environment. So it was sort of like they'd won the lottery and uh, caught the bull and now the bull had them. So it was like, how do you, <laughs> how do you start running with the bulls instead of getting gored by the bulls? So um, I think a lot of it came down to like, there's data everywhere. How do you organize it? How do you meet the needs of your new investors and partners as they grow? But it's, you, you still got to then deliver results. So um, it was like really critical time to value organizing a team and really from a CEO's perspective, partnering with these CEOs and, and new CFOs to set them up for success in the new environment. Great. And so then it became, I think you, you saw this pain across your portfolio and then uh, not a huge advertisement for Maxio, but saw the potential of a solution like ours to help solve that pain at scale for BB yeah. SaaS companies. Absolutely. I can't tell you how many um, I got. Well, the nice thing was I got to work with a lot of the investors as well as the management. So it was an interesting role, both at Vista um, and at Marlin, because you were seeing through the lens of how uh, professional investors looked at it. And then from the lens of management and founders and, and a lot, especially in the SaaS space, it's like, how do you grow your customers? How are you retaining the ones you have and how do you sell into it? That is a huge challenge for a lot of companies and uh, more times than not, they were going from QuickBooks to NetSuite or Intact. So upgrading an ERP system, but didn't really have good command of their most important asset, and that's their customer base. And then really understanding, like, who do they sell to? Who can they sell more to? And then really gross net retention type considerations that um, were, like, near and dear to every investor I work for, especially in the SaaS business. That's the, that's the heart of it. It's top-line growth being most valuable um, enterprise creator, enterprise value creator. Yeah, well, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going off script a little bit, so you can punt if you want. But having that unique view of being on the side of the investor and being on the side of the operator and being having been an operator, 
where do you see most of the tension exists between like we just went through a board meeting together with our investors at Battery and and the way that we represent information and the way the questions that Battery was asking of us like you've seen this play out across mm. many companies. How, where do you see there being most tension around which metrics or which or, or how to view the business? So I think really it, it a lot of times for companies it, the the bad point is what's the right data. So mm. for a lot of companies, you have the sales team reporting one number and your finance team reporting another number and the board losing faith or credibility on the management team. Fortunately for Maxio, that's not an issue. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, and that was probably the biggest um, plus for me that really like that attracted me to Maxio. The, the product really solved the one issue that the investors that I work with were so interested in. And that is like having like definite, like deep, deep, uh, knowledge of what's going on with your contracts and your customers by product by cohort. The tension I saw with the different investment teams is: can you pull that information to say, like, all right, that your customers that you you signed last September, what are they doing today, and then two years ago, and which products are doing what? I think the the management teams that have the back office solution that can do that are the ones that have less tension because it's not debating the facts it's debating what you do with the facts and i think that knowledge is power but having like confidence in the data is the key to um releasing that tension and really focused on more what strategic decisions to be made yeah i think um as i describe it uh the worst thing about a ceo and a cfo going to board meeting is going into math camp where the investors mm -hmm. start poking and they find inconsistencies between what you may have represented last quarter the quarter before so one of the things is having a common understanding of where the data is coming from a framework for reporting on it and then making sure it's consistent because yeah. it's super hard to go back and say hey our gross retention this uh, uh this quarter was 92 percent. last quarter was 88 percent. they come back to no 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 no. your board deck last quarter said it was 89 percent. and so spending wasting time around trying to get aligned on data and output versus the conversations those insights can provide is I think where there's real value. Yeah, absolutely. And I do like having a CEO that sends you emails at four in the morning saying, can you run the numbers this way? And then, <laughs> and then not freaking out and saying, yeah, we can do that. That, that's, um, that was a delight here. <laughs> <laughs> so for everyone on the call, I do have this tendency to get up early in the morning with brilliant ideas. <laughs> on the day of this board meeting, I had one, one ask for Dan and it literally was three o'clock in my morning time. Dan's on the East Coast, I'm on the West Coast, and he was able to produce the report and ship it back to me before our board meeting that morning. So I do think uh, I will try not to do that going forward, but it certainly is helpful to to know that we have access to data so that if there is a look or an issue you want to press on, um, you can grab the data easily versus having hundreds of hours of grinding out analysis. I remember that was my big aha, being a customer of Maxio at my last company where I was CEO, Percolate, was the, the CFO and his team would spend the first eight to 10 business days just trying to close the books, trying to get those financial statements out. Didn't have time for anything else. And I'd be sitting there with my fingers you know, on the table like, okay, when can we start talking about the operating metrics? And then you'd spend the next eight to 10 business days with the CFO at nights and weekends working through the data and trying to your point, understand what happened with the cohorts. You know, where, where, pricing, adoption, attrition, 
uh, how that plays out with segments and more broadly across regions. Uh, and so you're sliding into the board meeting with the numbers like hot off the presses and you're not sure because the Excel file is grinding down to a halt and someone changed the formula and everything went sideways and blew up. And so there was always this time (laughs) where it was this enormous pressure to try to get insights into the business right before the board meeting because you had to close. And the thing I really like about the technology today is you can push a button when the day when the when the month's over and you, you pretty much have ARR and revenue, which exactly. is what I think a lot of investors care mostly about is your ARR growth, right? How's that translating into revenue and churn? And then yeah. you know, solving the closing of the books over the eight to ten days expenses to get the cash and get to EBITDA important. But you're not going to spend a whole bunch of time analyzing that. You know how much you're spending on professional yeah. services and internal software, et cetera. So have you felt that um, at other companies that that tension of you, you're delivering everything at the last moment, but you're not sure if it's right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the whole time to value, whether it's you're delivering a product uh, to your customer or you're delivering it to your internal stakeholders. So there's nothing worse than you're already done with the next month and you're talking about the, the past month. And it's like, well, what good does that do me? So I think it's the shift of how do you go from looking in the rear view mirror to um, actually looking through the front windshield and being able to drive and not worrying about you're going to hit a hit a wall um, because you didn't have that real-time data. Yeah, and it's great. And that's a great transition to the next topic that we'd like to talk about a little bit about the changing skill set of the modern CFOs. And in our earlier conversation, we talked along three dimensions. I'd love to get your perspective. One is the need for tech savviness and adaptability and how that's changed as you've seen it over your career. Number two is the importance of soft skills like leadership and communication. And number three is this integration of sustainability of the system so that you can drive from what you were describing, the back office to the front office, so that you have this reliable system. So your entire, what the value you're providing is really different. So maybe comment a little bit on the tech savviness, adaptability, soft skills, and then the transition from back office to front office. Yeah, so I would say the tech savviness, especially in this day and age with everyone that's coming out of school or in in an organization, you're almost, you're flooded with data, right? So I think Excel is now like fully overloaded. So it's a matter of if you don't have that skill, it's partnering with someone in the organization that does it. But I don't think I don't think that crutch is going to be available for long to where it's going to be incumbent on everyone to get more tech savvy and being able to. Um, to use data and access it. The challenge really now is how do you cut through the data, connect the dots and cut through the noise? Cause there's almost like data overload. Uh, um, and I think that's one of where technology can be your friend or it can actually be a burden. When you look at all the nice shiny tools out there that are going to solve your problem. But if at the core, you have to get to the fundamentals, the, the tool and the technology will help you get faster and more efficient at the fundamentals. But I think, I never want to be in a position where I can't get to the answer or have to do it. And I think just in my career, I've always wanted to like, how do you like harness the data, get to it. But with the limited amount of time, you also have to make sure you're surrounding yourself with people that do it. So I think what's most critical is knowing the sources of data and making sure that the the interoperability of the data uh, between your systems, you really have that architecture or blueprint of how you want the company to be formed and shaped that you can share the data um, between systems. And that's probably one of the biggest things I learned at Vista whenever they like did an acquisition or add-on. Their first slide was data, 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 literally. Just <laughs> three words. 
But it was so true that the, the pace in which that they buy companies and accelerate through M&A, if you don't have that framework in place to how you harness the data to do it, you, you'll get crushed under it. So they spent a fortune landed an army to make sure they were set up with the right back office um, to be able to process and make good decisions. That And they bought good companies, so it wasn't like they were buying um, but they, they, their goal was find good companies, put them together and make great companies. And that was all based on like quality of data and the ability to make decisions off of that. Um, Interesting. So, so is that combination of the technology uh, ecosystem that you bring right. together to make sure they're connected in a way such that the data flow is consistent from the systems. Yeah. So, for example, we often talk about a monetization ecosystem and the connection between the CRM usually Salesforce and HubSpot. And for the early stage companies, the general ledger would be either Zero or QuickBooks. Correct. And then for running as a CFO, the financial operations and having that other pieces of technology, mm -hmm. your FB&A solution, your tax solution, your, your CPQ system, all right. being connected so that you're bringing that data together in one robust database. Exactly. Yeah. And I think so much more of like finance today is really partnering with your go to market team. So having that CRM with your back office accounting, just just the whole ecosystem and then your engineering product development of like, how do we all get insights? Vista and Marlin spent a ton of money on their CRM process. I have to say our team here at Maxio has blown me away with what they've done with. Uh, I thought Vista was good, but I have to give a shout out to our um Salesforce team here because they have integrated it like beautifully and it's a it's a company-wide tool not just a sales tool so I think the ability to share regardless of where you operate is what application it's bi-directional updating so everyone's always on the same page at the same time so um, I think that's key for every organization of if you're working off different sheets of music it's hard to to, to sound good <laughs> yeah and so I think you're calling out one of the really interesting points is we see more broadly, I'm a go-to-market guy, is the consolidation of go-to-market operations into more of a revenue operations role because yeah. you have so much complicated tech stack for marketing, sales, and customer success. And on that end, they, they those systems don't talk well together. And if you're optimizing for one, you're not connecting to the other. And so I think what you're pointing to is this idea of CFO is, is two things. One is expanding from even RevOps to business operations. Right. So you're thinking about technology and partnership maybe with an IT team or a RevOps team, but like how do you partner to say at the end of the day, the customer record has to be accurate, has to be consistent with the way that we enter it, we report on it, we use it to drive subscription management and renewals. Uh, the other thing, which I'd just like to poke a little bit on, is what I was describing is going from the back office to the front office, the front office being the go-to-market team, and the partnership that you have with either the CRO or the head of customer success. Um, how has that changed for you over the years that you've been a CFO or when you were at Marlin and Vista? Where did you see that partnership really work well? What were the characteristics of the CFO who was able to step into this role as strategic advisor? For the CEO, the CRO, and the CCO? I think historically when I started, it was very much like a compliance back office role. Had a bad reputation of the no guy. 
Um, <laughs> and, uh, which I understand there's a lot of creative salespeople out there. So I've learned, learned a lot with my, my friends in, in sales. I think it has definitely shifted where I was at a, a public company CFO of a small um, company selling to in the bank, banking technology space. And it was very much, I was selling the financial numbers because banks are super conservative and they want to know you're going to be around. So it was definitely partnering with the uh, go-to-market team to like, hey, this company is stable. We've got backing. We're not going to be going away tomorrow. Uh, so that was probably my first foray into like really working side by side with the sales team. There, Marlon and Vista, they spend a ton of time. And it's it's really focusing on top line growth. So it's how do you like optimize the, the your your systems and your your go to market motion with your sales and marketing team, and how do they like messaging everything from messaging to delivery to then cross sell upsell. I think here um, at Maxu, it's cool. It's like the first time I've, I've like really understood a product that a company I'm working at. And I'm a user of the product and our customers are, are CFOs, VP of finance controllers. So um, I've, this is probably the most I've ever sold. And actually I'm trying to get recruited into the sales organization because they seem to have a lot more fun. But uh, this, yeah. is, this has been a role of understanding that like this Maxio solution solves a problem that it's a real problem. So it's not like, I know a lot of salespeople are telling you, you're selling your height potentially at companies. This, since I've seen both sides of the equation where investors are looking at what a company is producing at board meetings, but what they're making decisions to grow the business on, having a solution that, that like personally I'm benefiting from, to, to your point of, I don't have to worry about closing the books of revenue or being right. It's like day one, we're done. And then also the ability to drill down and answer any board questions. So it's like, it's a huge, having the right tool at the right time and, and a tool that can scale with you is also a big thing. So like selling, to be able to sell, I think you have to be an honest broker to your customers. And every company that does wants that long-term relationship. So I think the salespeople that have done good lead looking at the long-term. How can I make a sale but continuing making sales? And that and that really is, are you solving the problem for uh, a customer? I think Maxio does that in spades. And it certainly does for me as an internal user of the solution. Yeah, well, I think when I was at Salesforce and being in the more of a go-to-market role there. I said, not that it's easy to sell, but it's a lot easier to sell when you're able to open up and say, this is how I use Salesforce. And so I think similarly, as we reach out to, when I talk to CEOs, this is how we look at the company or when you're talking to CFOs. So I do think um, in in terms of your partnership with sales, it's unique here. And that was one of the ways that we sold you on this was Mm. you get to be our best customer and tell us everything we need to change. So you get this opportunity to inform the roadmap as well. So that's super cool. I think the thing that I was I've appreciated and in, in, in what you've brought to the team and in, in how you help us think about like customer cohort analysis and looking broadly across where things are working and where we could be improving and and being at the seat of the table when we are thinking about those strategies. So we've done sales segmentation, we've done customer segmentation, we've talked about uh, unit cost economics and how we can but we we got to be deliberate and intentional in what you offer to different customers and big customers you can afford to put more services but small customers don't have small needs and so yep. there's this uh, i think one of the things that you've helped with and i imagine many cfos as they move from the back office to the front office is what are the set of products we can put together what's the profitability associated with customers where you have a cac payback period that might be north of a year or two yeah uh, and so you got to keep them and so what, what's the long-term profitability offset by the the initial investment that you're making to acquire them? I think is uh, again kind of 
where CFOs can really step back from just saying, here's your gap to here's our go-to-market strategy and investments that we can make. Well, great, Dan. So you talked to a bunch of CFOs. What is the like number one or number two challenges that they're facing other than, hey, they got to get smart on tech, um, like in building teams and feeling like they're able to be successful? What what are some things you would share from your your purview with people that are just getting started with their career or even people that are journeymen that are, you know, middle career? Yeah, I think right now, um, like it, like with a lot of things, finance is a team sport. And I do think right now, if you see in the news, which is somewhat surprising to me, the decrease in the number of people going into finance and, and accounting in particular, that's a little scary, although I'm glad I'm on the back end of my career because um, that is going to be, to me, like it's a huge opportunity. So a challenge of how do you attract people into the, um, the field because businesses will need that talent to um, help execute on strategy. And, and you've got to have that mentorship pipeline to develop people. But I do think a lot of people, whether it's in finance or even like software development, COVID especially made it a, a, a geographic, the lines were erased where you were trying to find the best talent anywhere in the world. And it opened up because there's limited resources and where you get that capacity. So I saw it a lot with uh, software developers and, and seeing now uh, finance professionals are coming into that same boat especially tech-savvy finance professionals, because you're looking beyond, I think, especially with the advent of AI and some of the um, this quantum shift that we're going through, it's not going to be like recording information. It's going to be, do you understand the business process, where the information is coming from? But it's going to be much more about the analysis and uh, deciphering and then providing insights and options to the leadership team and, and the company, as opposed to right now, it's still, even with all the technology, I'd say the the bulk or probably like 60 plus percent of the time is still capturing and recording and you get a fraction of it actually like, let's see what we've done and actually be able to analyze it and, and come to a conclusion, which is surprising, but not, not so surprising given finance is typically pretty cheap and you see a lot of people still on Excel and there's a lot of other solutions. Um, but there's also a lot of risk in that because the, the uh, one reputational risk, but also just formula errors. And then even beyond that, it's collaboration. So how do you get tools that get people on the same page that it's not just finance and they come out of a room and say, here's the numbers. It's my goal is how do we get our whole ELT um, management team looking at the same time at the same pages, bringing their, their lens. Cause if you have that bias to look through your own lens. It's getting other people in your organization that um, can be, as part of the solution, but embedded in the process, and you're sharing bi-directionally information um, as they're your customer. So I think that's one. The other, the other one is you've got limited resources. So I think um, as finance, the challenge is everyone's asking for that new shiny tool, thinking technology is going to solve their problem. I think you do have to be the gatekeeper and know when to say no. And it's like, and this gets what's the return on the investment here? Because you can spend millions of dollars on technology. And if it's not improving your top line or improving the bottom line, then is it really there? And I'm, I'm a victim of that too. You get that nice shiny tool looks cool and you want to try it. But at the end of the day, it's, um, it's technology is a tool. So is it making you make a more efficient, better decision? Um, or is it nice to have? And I think that's the challenge a lot of CFOs are having. Yeah, I think great. So a couple different challenges, one under talent and just uh, the supply and demand of people that are actually going into accounting. I wonder if uh, AI, 
and the way that it's going to help reinvent the accounting accountant's role will change it such that more people will think it's attractive. It won't seem as grunty. It'll yeah. be more about prompt engineering and being able to get your audit done and, and providing some intelligence. I think the other piece you were talking about, so it just there's there's a dearth of talent in the market. So where do we go find that talent? There's people across the US. And then I also think globally, I know we're looking and we've hired some folks in Philippines on the accounting team, finance team. I, I imagine that's very different than what you were even 10 years ago, where you wanted to be able to walk around and talk to everybody on the finance team in the office at the same time. How have you had other than the sharing of uh, information and access to the same information through technology. How have you changed the way you manage a finance team given this global dispersion in the world of, you know, remote first world that many companies are living yeah. in? I think I was probably an early adopter because I worked with a lot of teams in India, um, Europe that were different time zones and, and um, a multinational. I had like people all over the world that I was working with. I think COVID certainly accelerated that and like Zoom and technologies like that made it better. There is nothing like quite like meeting someone in person. I, I learned that at Marlin working with the seven or so different companies that I worked with there and technology can be tough too. And getting a chance to meet people face to face makes technology a lot easier. But I think at the end of the day, there's certain, it's like what's expected of like the delivery and being very deliberate on roles and responsibilities and a way to measure that. I think it's being flexible, especially with different time zones when you're halfway around the world, it's making sure you've got good overlap and that you're flexible on both are on your end and their end to what's the best. And, and, and it doesn't have to be one size fits all. But I do think um, I've really come across a lot of talent that it was like, you're missing the boat if you don't open your eyes to the opportunity out there. And then also other, the cool thing, especially with our uh, team members that are in the Philippines, they've worked for some monster companies. So as a small company, looking at some of these talent resources elsewhere in the world, they actually can add to your team and make it better because they've seen scale and stuff. So especially with small companies looking how do you scale for best practice, a lot of times you can get like great ideas and recommendations that you wouldn't normally have gotten just looking in your own uh, neighborhood. Yeah, I think that's great. I think this idea that, oh, there's this bias, of, it can only be done in Silicon Valley and we know how to do it versus like our engineering team is that we have great folks in Atlanta and, and around the U.S., but we also have a very strong contingency in Krakow, Poland. And yeah. just this idea that you have experts around the world, where, how do you go find those experts? So to your point, rather than just low cost labor markets over oh, getting cost arbitrage, instead, there's this opportunity to really great, get, get great skills too. And you're yeah. not giving anything up. You do have to make some compromises to your point and figure out how to mitigate, uh, and set the context to be successful. Uh, the other point, the implied point you made was, I think that uh, remote doesn't mean cheap, meaning, yeah. You're still going to spend money. If you're going to do it right, you got to bring people together. And if you have people scattered yeah. around the world, it's going to cost something. And so uh, how do you set up the context for T&E for the functional leaders to be deliberate about when they bring people together, including the finance team? Like how and when do you bring people together? So I guess what you heard here was Dan Owen said, more T&E is good. Yes. Um, <laughs> as long as it comes with bookings. <laughs> uh, there you go. Tied to bookings.
Uh, the other one that you were alluding to a little bit earlier, and maybe this will be our last point before I go to the speed round, was the internal use software. And I think what's so fun about uh, being in B2B SaaS specifically is you're selling software to other people who buy software. And so everyone buys everybody's software. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've seen most recently in the last year and a half is this tech recession where everybody's slowed down or doing deep dives into the broad set of technologies they have on board. Um, I know for uh, with battery, they talk about 2% of revenue as being a target in terms of spending on internal software, not COGS, but internal software for functions. Is that consistent with what you've seen at um, Marin and Vista, similar types of percent of revenue? Or, or how did you think about the budget for internal mm -hmm. software, the parameters, the, the envelope that you would like the teams to get to? Yeah, so I, I really... Um probably at a 30,000 30, foot view of how do you fit within your debt covenant <laughs> and manage cash right. and then probably ranking like, like priorities and where the return on investment is. I think definitely I've seen some rule of 50 companies that are spending a million dollars on software. They're lean and mean. And I think that's probably, they're very lean. And then you got to question, are they under investing in that? So I think it's not necessarily a hard and fast rule because I think a benchmark is a guideline. But I think if you can demonstrate that that investment and that internal use is saving you X number of headcount or your your deal volume is directly proportional to that that tool that's augmenting your staff, that to me is more of a guiding principle of each investment needs to have its own ROI and, and how does it stand on its face. But ulti ultimately, I think the things that value company are top line growth is probably the number one driver. And then second to that would be your, your EBITDA type margin to how do you triangulate that? But with limited resources, that's why it's a, it's a difficult gray area of a lot of, a lot of moving parts. And especially I, I appreciate the tools of my, my job is how do I get information out to my, my customers internal and external? So anything that can help me do that quicker, but I've got to weigh what's the cost of doing that. And is it worth an extra day of time or, or not? But ultimately, I think each department head has that role of how do you, how do you support the investment? And that, and that requires like honest feedback from your other um, colleagues of saying, do you call BS <laughs> on that or? Yeah. Hey, I've got other got other supporters here that says it's worth it, but yeah, I think I think re realistically, like that two percent is a is a good benchmark to shoot for. Yeah, and I think I, a couple of thoughts just to follow up on that. One is the as an executive team learning how to do business cases or NPV analysis, and it's not going to always work because the tool isn't going to necessarily drive revenue or be directly attributable cost reduction. But I just think having the team thinking in those terms is one way a CFO shows up, is able yeah. to help the whole team learn finance and learn how to do business cases. Yeah. Number two, to that point, I think, especially this is why I like this stage company, is the first team, the executive team, needs to have a common understanding of the business, what we're trying to solve for in terms of the, the growth profile and what we can invest, and then what does that translate to if we have specific EBITDA targets that we're going after as well and solve yeah. the problem together? And it's not like the, the CEO and the CFO go to the board and get the budget and say, okay, it's coming down from on high. Now you need to go execute. Instead, it's a much more powerful uh, uh, plan if everyone has contributed, felt like their voices were heard and were a part of the trade-off decisions in terms of identifying relative priorities, how investments are going to make uh, an impact. Yeah. Uh, what I find, and I'm, I'm probably now going to you know, upset all the people on our team, 
is what's often missed is the accountability. So people will do the business case. You'll have this conversation. They'll say we're going to deliver this many more leads or this much, uh, you know, improved retention. But then we don't close the loop on the back end to say, did we really get that? Yeah. And I know in our own example at Maxio, there's one or two pieces of technology that were sold to us, you and me, and we have our eye on it. And we're going to be like, well, I'm not seeing the return yet. We're going to we're going to pop that out. So exactly. uh, <laughs> it continues to be a conversation. Are we getting the payoff yeah. on the investments we're making in engineering, go to market, technology, professional services? But if you have that ROI orientation, are we get are we creating shareholder value? Yeah, over time. Uh, is really different. All right. So to close this out, Dan, we've had a you know great conversation around your journey as a CFO, the disruption, the, the, the themes of disruption in the office of the CFO, how the modern CFO is evolving. Here's our speed round. What's your favorite metric of all the SaaS metrics you see every month? We track 27. Which is the yeah. one you like most? It's probably boring, but it's, it's gross retention. Um, it's okay. Probably- it's probably my favorite because you can mask other things, but at the core, if you're not keeping the customers that you signed, it's really hard to, you can't get the benefit of that investment that goes into it. And you certainly don't get the ability to upsell, cross-sell, and then your net retention type metric. So it's sort of like a foundational metric to me that how, how good are you at, like you, you landed landed the opportunity. Now you got to make them happy and then grow with them. So if you're, if you're not doing that, then there's fundamentally, you've got, structural issues that you've got to address. Yeah. And I think to that point, just again, going back to if your CAC payback period is 18 months or two years, you got to hold them at least for that period of time before you even start making money. Exactly. So you, yeah, you know, it's really, and for me, if you you pull that apart, uh, it's that what's up for renewal and what's your renewal rate? Because then that leads to the long-term gross retention. All right. Second question, last one for you. What do you think is the most misunderstood metric? as you're talking to executive teams or you went into uh, those portfolio companies where people were like, oh yeah, yeah, we got this thing sorted. And you're like, no, 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 you totally missing it up. What's the one that's most misunderstood? I think it's probably leverage ratio. I think COVID really helped companies really get back, back to basics. But that leverage ratio is how much of your gross margin is going back to invest in the business. So if you're, if you're getting more lean and mean in your operational efficiencies, that means there's more of that gross margin. You can prove it back to, to product and sales and marketing, but it's, 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 it's a definite, I think a feedback metric that says if you're improving and getting it, especially in the SaaS environment, that you're, you're doing the right things with how, how, what you're generating and how you're investing in it. And what you have found is teams that you've worked with haven't put their head around that or they haven't fully appreciated the potential leverage you get by improving your gross margin. And just- I, I think, unfortunately, the teams I've worked with are just trying to get to gross retention. Yeah. <laughs> and it's more of the yeah. data challenges of, of there. And I think that's that next level of analysis of once you've got your house in order or, or building capacity to do that, then then you're really like peeling the onion back and getting it looking at these different um, drivers. And now you're, you're doing fine tuning at that point. So I think that's where tooling can help companies get past like the first level and then get uh, like the 200 level type analysis that how do you now look for those pennies that turn into dollars? Yeah. I, in talking to our GP Chelsea at uh, Battery, I thought it was fascinating. The way they look at businesses is they have a cash engine and a growth engine. And the cash engine is what you're describing. In other words, 
like a leverage ratio and how much are you actually generating covering your your costs and r d sales and marketing gna that then you can invest in growth or exactly. retention or you put the money on the books and you get ready to go do some in an m a and, yep. but you have to have both engines firing on all pistons or cylinders whatever the right metaphor is for you to be flying and and continue that trajectory so uh awesome well dan it's always fun really appreciate one you joining the company number two you'd be willing to talk to us about your journey some of the insights you have and then number three for the audience out there i'm sure you'd be willing to chat if they wanted to reach out either on linkedin or via, via email um, about the things you've learned and the way you're looking at the world and the uh, broad recommendations you have across the entire tech stack, not just Maxio, yep. uh, but how to tune teams and build global organizations. So thank you. Awesome. Well, Randy, thank you so much. I, I so much enjoy being your co-pilot. And actually, since you're a naval aviator, it, it does yeah. mean a lot, but your drive is, is fantastic. So thank you. Thank you well, so much. And um, anyone on the uh, podcast, absolutely reach out to me. I love building a network and uh, sharing the best uh, ideas. Great. Thank you.